All right, church, we're in Revelation chapter 6 this morning. Let's go ahead and get out our Bibles. We're going to look at this text. It's a difficult one, no doubt. But let's stand together for the reading of God's Word as we confess and believe here at Gospel Fellowship that God's Word is inspired and inerrant. It is authoritative, true in everything it reveals to us. Revelation 6, we're going to read verses 1 to 8 together as our text this morning. So let's listen now to this. Even when we read the Word of God, it's the same as though He were speaking to us, such as the authority of the Scriptures. Revelation 6, 1 to 8. Scripture says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword, verse 5, and he opened a third seal. And I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when I opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. May God spare us from these things, and may He bless us as we read and discuss His Word together this morning. You may be seated. I think it was Yogi Berra who one time said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. So we have to take a fork this morning because for the first five chapters of the book of Revelation, I would say that for the most part, most Christians have agreed As to the meaning of the first five chapters, there have been some difficult things in the details, no doubt about that. But as to the bigger questions of who is the slain lamb and things like this, most of the church has been in large agreements, almost unanimous agreements, that the slain lamb is, of course, Christ. Not a lot of controversy there. But today in chapter 6, this is the point in the book where the viewpoints on the book of Revelation definitely diverge. And so what I'm going to need you to do today is two things. I'm going to need you to, I'm going to need you to reach underneath the pew and pull out your thinking cap, because we're going, to, we're going to need that for the first half of the sermon. And then you need to pull out your steel-toed boots for the rest of the sermon in terms of the application, okay? So thinking caps are on. My third grade teacher told me to do that, and I've, I've done it ever since, so put those on. I reminded you of something, or I need to remind you of something that we discussed a long time ago when we started the sermon series all the way back in Revelation chapter 1. I told you, and you'll remember this, that there were four main views of the way that we even discussed this book, four main views of the way that we were going to try to interpret this book. And so this is the fork. This is where we have to pick one. So let me remind you of what they are, and then we're going to go through this text today. So the first view that we discussed is the view called preterism, and as the name suggests, Preterism looks at the book of Revelation as largely fulfilled in the past, especially related to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Romans. And that certainly happened. There's no question about that. And so preterists have the advantage then 
of pointing back to something that Jesus himself predicted. Jesus told us in the Olivet Discourse that the temple would be destroyed. And it was destroyed, and it's never been rebuilt. And so preterists primarily look at the book of Revelation as pointing to that great judgment, that local judgment, in which the temple was destroyed, the Old Testament worship sacrificial system was essentially ended, worship then was decentralized from one place to the ends of the earth, and the destruction of the temple in the city of Jerusalem was no doubt, it was a bloodbath. It was an absolute, a savage war in which Rome conquered then the people of Jerusalem and destroyed their temple. So preterists are constantly looking for that. Now exactly the opposite of that is the perspective called futurism. And as the name suggests, futurists are primarily looking at the book of Revelation. They're constantly pointing towards the future. They're saying, no, no. These things are yet to come. We're waiting for these things to be fulfilled. And so futurists are going to look at this text, this text today that we have, and they're going to say, no, these things are yet to come. These things pertain to, usually in their view, seven years of tribulation immediately attending the return of Christ. So preterists and futurists are quite obviously disagreeing about what this text here means. And then there's another view, a third view called historicism, and in historicism, they're trying to primarily connect these seals that we're seeing open today with events in church history, all right? So they're looking for things like, for instance, the medieval plagues to fulfill this, this, uh, this seal that pertains to widespread death, just by way of example. And historicists are going to look for things like the beast to be perhaps the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope. They're going to be looking for, for other such things like the Reformation. So historicists then, quite interestingly, are going to be trying to find these events in church history. And by the way, before you dismiss that, a lot of the Puritans and the Reformers were historicists. Okay, So don't just toss that view out. But the view that I'm primarily taking here, this is the fork in the road, and I've got to take it today, is the interpretive grid called idealism. And idealism takes a little bit of strength from each one, but idealism primarily interprets the whole book of Revelation as very graphic depictions, largely drawn from the imagery of the Old Testament, yes, to describe what practically every Christian has to endure in every age of the church. Okay, So idealism has the advantage of saying to any generation of Christians, whether they lived in the past or the present or the future, this text applies to you and to us. And so we somewhat have to take this fork in the road today. And I just wanted you to know that. Now, let, now let's remind ourselves about the literary context of what's happening here in chapter 6. This is where the book gets hard, to be honest. Okay, So last week in chapter 5, we saw what we described as the ascension scene of Christ. He is the Lamb who was slain, who is now standing over heaven and earth. And the, the Lamb who was slain is now going to begin to open the seals. And there are seven of them in this scroll book that has already been, been introduced, which we have interpreted as the decreed will of God for redemption history. And so everything you're going to see today is explicitly and particularly in the control of the very hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't need to be afraid of anything we're going to talk about today. Christ is clearly in control here. All right. And so as John typically does in the book of Revelation, 
He is drawing from Old Testament sources then to describe spiritual and gospel realities that are applicable to all of us, every Christian in every age. That's the way we're going to take this text today. And the Old Testament text that John is obviously using is the one that we just read from Zechariah 6, but also some portions from Zechariah 1, wherein that prophet introduces these horsemen, these four horsemen, which in Zechariah 6, quite ironically, their purpose then is to patrol the earth and to secure it. Okay? So John is taking that imagery, and now he's going to cast it in the form of these judgments that are going to follow But all the while, don't lose control of the fact that it is the one who loves you, the Lamb, who is opening these scrolls one by one and revealing these things that portend to all of us who are in Christ. And therefore, the call for us then is to endure and to remain faithful to Christ no matter what should come. Yes? So with thinking caps on, and then we're going to put our steel-toed boots on here in just a few minutes, What I'd like to do this morning is is fairly simple. We're just going to go through these four horsemen of the apocalypse, and we're going to look at what these four seals that are opened portend for us today. And notice here that we're stopping before we get to the fifth seal opened next week, which is very important because I take that fifth seal to be a comforting reminder that even if we should die, even if we die, that our souls then are still precious to the one who redeemed us by the blood of the Lamb. And we're going to talk about those things next week. So, But for this morning, what we're going to do here is we're going to look at the four horsemen of the apocalypse as they are revealed one by one. And we're going to try to just figure out what we can discern about their meaning then and its relevance to us. And then we're going to put on the steel-toed boots and try to apply it. All right, Everybody clear on what we're going to do? All right, good. So I hope you have your Bible open, because I've got my Bible open. This works best when we're all looking at the same text here. We're all singing off the same choir sheet. We're all reading from the same playbook here. So let's start in verse 1 and just look at what's happening here. And it says here in verse 1, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold... A white horse. And so this begins the sequence of the opening of the seals here. And I just want to remind you again, I've already said this twice. Christ, our Lord, is purposefully and very intentionally in his own hands opening these seals. There's no accidents here. Okay, It's it's not as though he has dropped the book and somehow the seals popped open by accident here. Nothing is being released by accident here. This is all intentional in the hands of Christ. And so the first thing that we see here is this rider on the white horse. Now, immediately here, we've got a decision to make. What does this mean? Who is it? And I'm going to be honest and tell you here that, that different Christians, faithful Christians, have chosen different interpretations for the rider on the white horse. In fact, some Christians actually believe that the rider on the white horse is Christ himself. And in favor of that possibility... Jesus is described as riding on a white horse in this same book, Revelation chapter 19, right? Moreover, he's wearing white, which is the color of purity symbolically in this book. Not only that, but he's wearing a crown, as we can see here in this text. Jesus is described as wearing a crown here in Revelation 14, 14. And so a lot of people have made a very simple connection here, and they've said, okay, the rider on the white horse must be Christ, 
And particularly some of our dispensationalist friends, we may disagree with them on this, but a lot of dispensationalists have looked at this and said, then th- this must be the rapture of Christ here. But I, but I say to that view, hold your horses. I've been waiting for that line all week. <laughs> because there's something slightly disjunctive about interpreting this as Christ. First, that all of the other horsemen here seem to portend quite bad things, right? These are judgments. Not only that, but there's some awkwardness in that Christ is sending forth Christ. In the Scriptures, it's the Father who sends the Son, not the Son who sends Himself into the world here. And so even while this may look like Jesus, there's some things here that may say to us, well, hold on a second, because because Christ is also described in Revelation as carrying not a bow as his weapon, but rather what? The sword. And in fact, in the New Testament, and I don't want to make too much of this, it's just a small detail, but who is it in the New Testament who is firing the arrows at Christian believers? It's the enemy. So I'm going, to take it, I'm going to take with many Reformed and conservative interpreters here that, that this first writer is actually false Christs and false prophets come into the world. And to defend that view, let's go back to Matthew chapter 24 and look at the Olivet Discourse of Jesus. I think there's something really relevant here that you may see that, that is, is, is largely convincing to me. So let's flip back to Matthew chapter 24. Now, In Matthew 24, this is the Olivet Discourse of Christ. All of my preterist friends are going to say yes and amen because clearly here in this text, Jesus is definitely talking about the destruction of the temple. He is foretelling this years before it took place. Jesus is predicting that, something like 32 or 33 AD here. And the temple destruction takes place in 70 AD. I don't disagree with that at all. However, in Matthew 24, I take verses 3 through 14 as something like a description of the entirety of the church age, whereas I agree with preterists that verses 15 and following do begin to describe the local judgment of the destruction of the temple. And so watch what happens here in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is going to warn us of a series of difficulties that are going to happen. Okay, So let's just pick it up in verse 4. So Matthew 24, 4. Jesus answered them and said, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not near uh, yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of birth pains. And then, look at verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. Pause right there. Do you see the pattern? So right here in this text, Jesus has described in the precise order of the seals of Revelation 6, first, false Christs and false teachers in verse 4, then wars and rumors of war in verse 6, corresponding to the red horse, Then after that, we see famines and earthquakes in various places. And then finally, we see death, including even the martyrdom of very faithful Christians. And so when you layer 
the Olivet Discourse, the predictions of Christ about the whole of the church age, these sufferings that Christians are going to have to experience, right on top of the four horsemen of the apocalypse right here, you have in the exact same order false Christ, then war, then famines, then persecutions. I say to you, I don't think that's an accident. In fact, I think what John is doing here is he's drawing that imagery from Zechariah chapter 6, but then he's recontextualizing it onto Jesus' discourse on Olivet, which he heard with his own ears as one of the disciples of Christ. Okay. So we might say something like this by way of summary. Just as Jesus warned his disciples that they would endure many hardships to remain faithful, so John is now warning that all believers throughout all the church age must remain faithful no matter what. That's the big idea here. That's the big idea of this whole text. Okay, And so you, you may say back to me, but the rider on the white horse looks like Christ. I say to you, exactly. That's what false prophets and false teachers and false Christ want you to believe. And this is why they come out to conquer, or conquering it says, and to conquer. And you say to yourself, conquer what? To conquer your mind. To conquer your heart. To conquer your family. To conquer your life. All right. Now, I, I get it. They look religious. Exactly. But they look so sanctimonious. I know. But they're so winsome. That's exactly the problem. But the way that we recognize false teachers and false Christ, despite whatever charismatic and winsome personalities they may have, is that ultimately they're going to lead us astray from the foundational truths of the Scripture and pull us to something that is far less than the Gospel. And in so doing, they are coming to conquer and to, uh, they're coming conquering and to conquer. You see? And so, so the, the church does very well to remind themselves that not every rider on a white horse that comes out with a crown and looks winsome and charismatic is necessarily good. Many are evil. And so we, we have to take warning. Jesus said this would happen, and it happens all the time. It started happening in the early church. It happened throughout the Middle Ages. It happened in the times of the Puritans, and it happens today. Okay? So let's move on then, secondly, to the rider on the red horse. Now notice this in verse 3. When he opened the second seal, the text says, I heard a second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Obvious symbolism, blood. Okay, No question there. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. Now that's interesting, permitted to take peace from the earth, because in Zechariah, the riders actually seem to be something like peacekeepers. It says multiple times that they've come to patrol the earth for the comfort of God's saints. But here they're permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So this, com- this, this clearly uh, seems parallel to me with Jesus' prediction that there would be wars and rumors of war. And my goodness, hasn't there been? I mean, this is why the historicist position, I think, is in a difficult place, because there's wars everywhere, all the time, throughout all the ages. Sometimes they're merely rumors, and we, we take solace in that, but, but sometimes actual war breaks out. 
and the whole of the history of the earth uh, is, a, is, a, is a history of great violence and calamity. In fact, when I was in history class, that's how we went through the history. Is we, we went through and we just tracked history by its wars. There seems to be no period in which there are no wars. And even America, as much as we love our own country, and I certainly do, um, when we teach American history, we teach it by way of our wars. We start off with the Revolutionary War, and then we go on to 1812, and then we go to the Civil War, and then we go to World War I and World War II, and then we go to Korean War, Vietnam War, Iraq I, Iraq II, Afghanistan. That's how we tell our story. And I will simply, I'll simply leave this with you here, that, that war is amongst the most terrifying Right? It is the most saddening, it is the most tragic, it is the most traumatizing of things. And it's, and it's a good thing here that the writers are permitted in the sense that they're subject to the sovereignty of God. Because if God's restraining hand wasn't on this earth, I can guarantee you we would destroy ourselves in any generation. Okay. Humankind is prone and want to treat one another with an incredible amount of viciousness and almost every age. And if it weren't for the sovereignty of God holding it back, we would have already destroyed ourselves many times over. But let me just point out one word to you here in regards to the red rider here. It is the word slay. You see that in verse 4? You have the word slay in your Bible? Okay. That's not typically the word that we might translate to kill as in an even fight. Like when armies go to battle against each other. The word here to slay has a particularly religious and sacrificial connotation in the Greek New Testament such that it prompts us to think immediately of who? Who else was slain? The Lamb of God, yes. Okay. So again, the very one who is permitting these things to be so is the one who loves you enough that He was slain for you and for your salvation. So don't forget that. And not only that, but just to look ahead quick peek to next week when we open the the fifth seal or we look at the fifth seal opened i should say again we're going to see the souls of those who have been slain in verse 9 here so as much as we wish that christians were not among those who were slain by the vicious hands of men yet we're going to see the fact that many of them are by way of martyrdom and not only that but god has not forgotten about them but they're still precious to him okay so that's, that's the red rider. Now let's go on to the third rider here, and that'd be the one on the black horse. We see him in verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the, th- the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hands. Now here we will immediately think of the market and commodities here, because this judgment seems to portend to trade, or to the market, or to a commercial endeavor. Even feeding our families here is relevant in this text. The scales in the ancient world were ubiquitous in the marketplaces. That's how they traded. They traded certain weights of things for other things, food for food, or money for food, or money for money even on the exchanges. And so here, what we're seeing here, now I realize that that, uh, this comparison is kind of lost on English modern readers here when it says a a quart of wheat for a denarius, and you're like, well, how much does it usually go for? Because um, I, I don't know about you, but I have not bought a quart of wheat or a, a quart of barley lately. But if you have, 
I just want you to know here that the, the inflationary rate is something like 10 times. That's the idea. Okay. Not 10%. 10 times. So right now, we kind of relate to this because we're in a period of great inflation in our own economy. Things cost a lot more than they used to. Just go try buying a a dozen eggs. I've heard that even the cartels are now smuggling eggs into the United States because they're so expensive these days. Okay, but but that's 10% inflation. We're talking here, and the, the scale of the math is 10 times the value. And that's a, that is a major problem for anybody who's going to try to feed their family under such conditions. Because that basically what that means here in this text is you go to the grocery store, it's not that prices have gone up a smidge, it's that you can't feed your family on these prices anymore. That's the idea. You'd never be able to do it. Imagine going to the grocery store and you come back with one-tenth of the amount of caloric food stuffs to try to feed your family than you used to be able to bring home, right? That's the idea. And so you say, well, that that doesn't sound as bad as wars and people slaying each other in the previous horse, but hold on a second because I'll, I'll I'll simply offer you this, that a man who is watching his family slowly starve to death can be manipulated to do practically anything. Okay, A man, because starvation's slow. That's a terrible way to die. And a man who is watching his family starve to death, you can coerce him to do practically anything. You can get him to sign a pledge, doesn't matter what it says. You can get him to sign up for the army, he'll do that. He'll bow down to the king. He'll kiss the king's shoe if he has to. He'll kiss the king of the emperor if he has to. Right? And so, so when certain authoritarian powers present themselves, people in, with very little bargaining position, they're almost willing to do practically anything for the sake of their family, and you can't blame them. And you say, well, how could anybody be preserved through such calamities? And I say to you, that's exactly the point. Lest God preserve us faithful through these difficulties, nobody would be able to endure. That's part of the point here. Okay? And so, so moving on then, let's finish up here with the fourth rider in verse 7. Now notice this, it says, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, in verse 8, he looked and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. Now the word pale here in the original Greek um, is, is actually the word for greenish, Okay, so like a greenish tint. And here we're probably thinking of the, the look of a corpse or a dead body. Okay, so this pale color here is a repulsive and it is a disgusting color. It is the color that looks like a, like a body with its blood drawn out here. It's a very graphic image. And John tells us that the writer's name was Death and Hades followed it. And then John... This, this judgment is something like a summary of all the others because he says in the end of verse 8, he says that uh, they will kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So th- that fourfold judgment there is actually another Old Testament citation. This is Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 21. So John is, is drawing in from Ezekiel text here. And the idea here is that there will be large-scale death and suffering. And it's that this point in the sermon then that we probably need to put our keep our thinking caps on but we need to put on our steel-toed boots 
because some of you are going to say to me, Pastor Matt, I did not like your sermon today. I did not come here to be depressed. I came here for a word of encouragement. To which I reply, I know. Like, I'm not thrilled about these things either. But it's not necessarily my job to uh, bring the warm fuzzies on Sunday mornings on the Lord's Day from this pulpit. This is the pulpit. This is the sacred desk in which we exposit the Word of God. Yes? And so when we come to difficulties in the text, we don't simply set them aside because they're emotionally disturbing to us. Instead, what we do to be faithful to the text is we say, then what does the Lord require of me? And what the Lord would require of you in such context is that you would remain faithful to Him and persevere unto the end no matter what comes. That's what He asks. That's the point of the sermon on, on Olivet. And it's the point of Zechariah 6. And it's the point of this text too. Okay? So with steel-toed boots on, ready to encounter whatever the Lord would have for us then, let me tell you and remind you of at least three things that can bring you some encouragement in this text. Here we are. Ready for application? I'm going to give you three. First, consider still the goodness of the Lamb. The fact that these judgments come, the fact that these judgments are particularly harsh, the fact that these judgments seem to be fairly universal, both in time and in scope, does not in any degree mitigate or diminish the goodness of the Lamb who is holding all of the scrolls in His hand. Don't ever forget that. Okay? The very one who is releasing these things on the earth is the very one who was slain for you. And if He was slain for you, then we can point to the goodness of our Christ and we can say with the utmost certainty that He has my good in mind. Right? And not only that, but His goodness here in that He was slain for us is married together with His omnipotent power because He is the one who is revealing these things in the history of the world. And to, to that, I need to ask you simply this question. Do you have a theology of history? Do you have a philosophy of the history of the unfolding of events? Because you're going to need one. If you don't have one already. Now, you may be thinking, okay, I thought philosophy class was a different class from history. No, you need a philosophy of history. You see what I'm saying here? Because if you don't have one that's derived from Holy Scripture, the world's going to offer you one, and it's not going to be as good. Let me name a couple. Nihilism, from the, from the Latin nothing, is the idea that the whole of history is meaningless. Nihilism suggests that everything that happens to you is random. We are, we are the product of molecules and atoms bouncing off each other randomly in a chaotic and purposeless and meaningless universe. And for, for some, they think that nihilism or nothingism is somewhat of a comfort because that means to them that their sufferings are ultimately purposeless. I don't find any comfort in nihilism, do you? Marxism is another philosophy of history, are you aware? It is a worldview pertaining to the unfolding of events. Marxism is a philosophy of history that says to you, you are the victim, you are the victim class, 
And what you need to do is you need to flip the script on history so that the victims become the oppressors. You throw off the oppressors and the victims become the new hegemonic powers who are in control. Okay? Sometimes Marxism is cast in the form of an economic theory. Sometimes Marxism, as we're finding out right now, is cast in the form of a social justice theory. But don't, don't miss the point here. Marxism is definitely a philosophy of the unfolding of history. But it's not sufficient. Neither is utopianism. What is utopianism? It's another philosophy of the unfolding of history. Utopianism will say to you that everything is constantly getting better. In fact, in most utopian theories, big brother government is going to be the one who comes in to take, to take, ter- to take care of all of your problems. You got a disease? We got a medicine for that. Okay? You got an economic problem? We got a handout for that. And in utopianism, the idea is that the unfolding of history is constantly going to improve, especially as governmental control takes more and more power. Don't worry, they'll make your life better. Okay. But Christians have a philosophy, or better to say, a theology of history. You see that? And so, so in our theology of history... God is ultimately in control of all evil. In fact, evil must submit and heal even to his decreed will and plans. And so whenever we look out and we see evil unfolding in this world, we say to ourselves and we remind ourselves of this comfort that even that must submit to him. Right? And not only that, but his omnipotence reminds me of his power and his benevolence reminds me of his goodness. And so our theology or our philosophy of the unfolding of history is that all things will be in ultimate submission according to the plan of the Lamb who was slain. That's our theology of history. And you're going to need to hold to that when things get difficult. Because they certainly will in every age and generation. Okay. Next application. This is for your steel-toed boots here. All right. Did you miss the elements of mercy and restraint in this text? So, where was that? It all sounded terrible. Okay, so don't miss the elements of mercy and restraint in this text because they are clearly present. In fact, in each unfolding seal here as the judgments are revealed, there is an element in which the mercies of Christ, the restraining mercies of Christ are also prevalent here. So let's go back through the text and just look at them. Now let's start here with the second rider. We'll come to the first in just a minute here. The red horse rider. Don't forget in verse 4, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. Permitted is your key word of restraint and mercy here. Again, even the wars and rumors of war are subject to the limitations and confines that the Lamb allows them to run up to. Well, where else do we see restraint and mercy? Well, we'll go on to the next one. Look at the black horse judgment. A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of wheat for barley for a denarius. That's a bad price. A denarius will take you all day to earn. You'll starve to death on that. But, but look at this. Do not harm the oil and the wine. Now that's been taken different ways by different interpreters. No question about that. But let me throw out a possibility here. What does wine 
in the Old Testament. It is a, it is a symbol of joy and even feasting of God's people. And what is, what is oil in the Old Testament? Very often typological of the anointing of God. And so even here in the midst of perhaps famine and starvation, yet there's something that cannot be taken away from the Christian. Could it possibly be that even in the worst of possible scenarios here, that our joy and our anointing, in other words, the presence of the Holy Spirit, will not be touched? I think that's a very intriguing possibility. Okay? You say, well, where else is the restraint and the mercies of God? We'll look on to the next one. And the next one, it says, and the rider of the pale horse that his, uh, his, his death here is only going to touch a fourth of the earth. So this is restrained as well. Now, now actually, death is 100%. Okay, it's, it's not 25%. Death is 100%, to be fair. We're all going to die. <laughs> but, but the reason that John draws this in is simply to remind us that even in these darkest of moments... Yet, yet the darkness cannot, cannot swamp then the boundaries to which God has established for it. And so throughout this text then we see the mercies and the restraint of God. And then third, here's the third application to latch up those steel-toed boots, all right? Don't forget that as we take this text to be relevant to every age and generation of the church, okay, then we also now, here in year 2023, we have the benefit then of looking back throughout church history and we can see faithful Christians in history that have endured even the worst of circumstances. And what does that do to us? Well, I don't know about you, but it causes me to take great comfort and boldness based on their courage in the face of sufferings. Okay? So I can look back on church history and I can see James the Apostle, right, getting martyred in Acts chapter 13 and I can take courage from that. Or I can look to Polycarp getting burned at the stake and yet remaining faithful to Christ. And I can look at Wycliffe and I can look at Tyndale and I can look at various of the Reformers and the Puritans. And I can look back at almost every stage of church history and I can say to myself, my goodness, how is it that these faithful Christians are so strong and so courageous? Oh God, that we would be a faithful and courageous generation as well. Right? And so we can take courage from this. And not only that, but going back to the Olivet Discourse one more time, and I promise I'm going to end right here, remember that even after Jesus uh, uh, he warns us that all of these things will be, and though they be very difficult, look at verse 14 of Matthew 24. He says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole of the world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. And so what we see here then in the Olivet Discourse is despite the many persecutions that will befall the church, yet the ultimate purpose of the global gospel of grace cannot possibly be thwarted. God has decreed it to be so. And in that, we take courage on this Lord's Day morning. Let's take out our hands.